What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm hanging out with Dr. Peter Baumgarten. He was my professor at Hope College. Uh, he taught management, and he's just an absolutely brilliant man in the concept of bringing together consulting, education, and business all into one place. He's now a professor at Wash U, but he's doing some amazing work in the strategy conversation, consulting, and just, just taking care of business. He's a fabulous guy, and I think he's an absolutely brilliant man. So take a look at this episode and listen in. It really starts to answer the question of, A, what can you do with consulting? What is strategy? And, and how can you begin to take your business, your idea, your concept from a learning curve to an actual practical state? So we loved having him as a guest, and uh, this is a great episode. Hi, Dr. Baumgarten. Thanks, uh, thanks a ton for being on the show. Matt, it's great to be here. little backstory for those listening. I actually had... Dr. Baumgarten as a professor at Hope College. I think I sat in the back corner and I probably talked more than I listened, but I will say there's uh, snippets of wisdom throughout the course of my education that I learned from him that I still carry to this day. So first off, my apologies for probably not paying as much attention as I should have. But secondly, thank you for uh, <laughs> being an awesome professor. It was, a, it was a fun learning curve. You know, man, I think you were actually maybe a front row guy, but you took a large number of calls in the midst of class, if I remember right. So it was kind of a, an in-between, front row, but uh, more calls than most students. So that, the, wor the worst of both worlds, I caught everybody else's attention too. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, cool. So I, I'm excited to have you on the show, obviously, from the context of 
uh, you teaching, consulting in the strategy world, and your career has really started to take off and everything that you're doing. And so if you could start, can you just give us a little background about your story and what, you know, what's led up to what you're doing today? Yeah, happy to. Um, so I uh, was a senior in college. I, I won't take it back to birth, but I'll take it back to late college. Um, senior Perfect. college, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And had the a pleasure of getting to know a mentor and friend who ended up becoming a colleague later on, this guy, Stacy Jackson, who's uh, at Hope College now. Um, I was finishing undergrad and starting to say, I knew I wanted to do something in the context of business and people, uh, but didn't exactly know what that was. Uh, so I had a guy like Stacy, who I started to meet and talk to about career, was also working pretty closely with a guy, Mike DeVries, um, who's based in the venture capital world out of Grand Rapids. And was really drawn towards kind of his blend of work. And so I had in kind of the top of my mind a couple different models around what I wanted to do. So a guy like Stacy, who is teaching, consulting, writing, working with companies, a guy like Mike, who is investing and in, in living in the startup world, and then uh, ended up, long story short, going on to grad school, doing my PhD at WashU, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and then ended up meeting another guy, John, who was teaching and working a lot internationally. And so really in the first couple of years out of school, I had these three different models around what I was drawn to. Um, one guy who was the teacher consultant, one guy who was the entrepreneur VC, and one person who was the teacher plus international. And I think over the next couple of years when I was finishing my PhD and then eventually starting uh, as a faculty member at Hope, I've been trying to blend those three different routes to some degree, trying to try on certain pieces of what they do and say, yes, this is a fit. Um, try on other pieces and say, no, this isn't me. I thought it was going to be me, but it's not quite uh, who I am and what I want to do. And so I think of my kind of first couple of years out of school, out of grad school in particular, when I was a faculty member at Hope, um, doing a number of different things that were trying to craft the job that I wanted to do. Um, was there then for uh, seven or eight years, um, I think eight years, which is crazy to say out loud, uh, <laughs> and then uh, had an opportunity in the last year to come back to uh, my alma mater, um, and I've been back at WashU uh, in St. Louis, um, teaching, uh, doing a bunch of work with executives and executive programming, consulting, and the like, uh, and I've been doing that since last July. That's amazing. Thanks for thanks for sharing the story. So uh, I'll admit this is a question that dates back to sitting in your classroom that uh, I've, I've wondered, but I think it applies here. So how have you balanced in your career as an educator, but also as a wickedly smart business mind? How do you balance the practicality of the business world and the educational side of the classroom, those two things meeting together? How have you first personally balanced those two things? And then how I guess, ultimately, do you help teach and guide people through that? I know that's like probably 10 years worth of an answer, but I'd love to hear sort of your uh, your response to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it under 30 minutes. So that <laughs> That's I- perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was thinking about this actually on a run last night. Um, I was listening to a podcast and, and trying to reflect on what it is that I'm energized by and what I attempt to do in regards to uh, uh, trying to bring value to clients or to students. And One piece of the story for me is having this intersection of theory and um, practice or kind of the pragmatic side. Um, And so what that means is the unique position that I can bring to the table relative to someone who's only in theory 
like only an academic or someone who is uh, only a practitioner is I try to bring together relevant theories into the world and then help people kind of try them on using kind of a mix of kind of design thinking or uh, just certain methods to get them thinking uh, about the applicability of a certain theory to, to their world. And I think the benefit of that is theories can be really great to kind of elucidate and sh like show certain parts of the world. At the same point, if it doesn't work pragmatically, if I um, bring it to a client and they say, yeah, this doesn't quite fit. Well, that's either a mistake that I'm doing in the translation or it actually just isn't that relevant of a, of a theory. So I'll give you just a brief example of that. I was um, on this run. I was listening to a, an interview with Cass Sunstein, who's the legal theorist at Harvard, worked in the Obama administration for a number of years. And he was talking about dynamics around what drives social movements like Me Too and other such things. And was basically saying there's some people that um, basically need one other person to change in order to move towards a social uh, movement. So in other words, if I know that... Um, yeah, Matt is supportive of Me Too or Matt is supportive of the Green New Deal or something, then I'll be uh, on board. Other people, he calls them twos. In other words, uh, they need two people. Other people need threes. They need three people around them. And then all the way up to an infinite number, people that uh, would never change no matter what. And he, he was using this to kind of illustrate dynamics of social change. There's a lot of data behind that. So I can take something like that, and if I'm with a client tomorrow, I'm trying to actually try it on. So I, I might take a theory like, like that, tee it up in a slightly different way, and then be working with a client in the healthcare space tomorrow, trying to say, how does this fit your world? Um, and there's kind of an experimentation that's moving back and forth between those two pieces. So again, theory plus practice intersecting. And then I think the other piece of the story is I need to find a way to be able to kind of incubate ideas. So for me, that's in writing or having periods of time where I'm able to kind of free up some headspace. If I'm in constant reaction mode, I'm not able to do that. And then at the same point, I need opportunities to experiment, to try it on with clients. So I think at a high level, what I attempt to do uh, in my own kind of method is this blend of getting theory to intersect with practice and then needing space to be able to incubate those ideas on my own and needing space to be able to experiment or try out those ideas with other people. And if I can do those things well, if I have enough of those four different buckets, I can feel pretty energized in regards to how I'm able to hopefully add value to the students that I'm working with and also the clients that I'm spending time with. Yeah, that's amazing. Are you cool if we stay here for a second? Because I got to, uh, I'm, I'm particularly curious about the first mover, second mover, third mover sort of concept. For, yeah. In your experience, what, what you've seen are most people in reaction to like their association, they are a number one mover. They only take one other. They only take two other. They only take three other. What are majority of people that fall into that? Do you know? Yeah. So um, uh, Sunstein uh, basically uses an example of uh, Saudi Arabia. So men from Saudi Arabia have significant control over whether or not their wives work. And what he finds that the private view of most men in Saudi Arabia would be that, yeah, it's actually okay if, if my wife works, but their view of what other men like them think is that no one believes that. So in other words, I'm sitting here being like, well, I think it's okay to do this sort of thing, but other people like me, right? Matt must not think that. And because we're so sensitive to kind of social, uh, social approval, um, then we're usually not willing to drive forward with that behavior. So what he basically finds that is if you run an experiment and you basically just tell people 
that most people have a view similar to your own. Most people believe this social policy to be uh, uh, not supportive of a broader society, whatever it might be. That starts to nudge people in the direction of saying, oh, okay, well, then I could actually trust my instinct. Um, and so my guess is using Cass's language, and again, I've only uh, listened to his interview and haven't read this newest book that he's uh, driven. Uh, he would make the case that there are very few zeros, people that are willing to move without any sort of support at all. There's probably a smaller number of kind of ones and twos, but probably the, the most of us have some sort of tipping point when we're okay with it. So cryptocurrencies taking off. If I know one person that's essentially trading cryptocurrency, I'm you know suspicious of it. If I know two, I'm suspicious. But if Facebook today releases a new uh, currency built on uh, uh, built on some sort of crypto model, which I think they just did, then all of a sudden I feel like it has a social legitimacy and I move towards it. So sure. I guess most people are like 15s or uh, 100. <laughs> the, group, the group thing kills everything, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, okay, so let's, let's talk about the context of you in this unique uh, situation of you consult, you learn, and then you also are a creative yourself. So how do you keep up with the pace of learning given all of the information you're gathering at once? And I uh, obviously before this call, I mentioned uh, Michael Leckie, who's the chief learning officer at Bloomberg. And one of the things that he quotes on is basically your ability to survive is your ability to learn. And so you being in sort of all three capacities to catch such a wide net of information that you can gather, how do you handle what ideas are worth putting into practice, what ideas are worth teaching, what ideas are worth throwing away, given your sort of trifecta of gathering information? Yeah, so I'll go kind of tactical in some of these things, maybe big picture as well as some tactics. Um, and think of this as a, a working answer because I'm still trying to figure out what a few of these things look like in my own life. It's real time, and that's the best. That's the best way to get information. Real time, good, I love it. Um, so there's a couple things there. Um, one is the point that I know that I need input of stuff coming in, and so I think what I'm trying to get in terms of my input model, the stuff that I'm reading and taking in is stuff that's kind of relevant and distinct. So in other words, if I'm just taking in the exact same kind of inputs as everyone else, then I would guess that my output is going to be somewhat similar. So when I think about my colleagues that exist as business school academics, most of what they take in is stuff within our fields, organizational behavior, strategy, et cetera. Um, I think that some of my uh, distinction, um, hopefully value add distinction, is that I try to have a slightly wider range of types of things that I take in. So that's going to be that I read philosophy or uh, political theory or, um, again, work in real world. I find like traveling is really helpful for me. So I was just spending some time in China um, the last week or so and just almost opening that filter and just taking in the world around you. So one point of the story is just like a wide set of inputs. Um, then I would say I, there's some sort of need for me to be able to have time to, again, incubate and experiment. So um, incubating for me sometimes is, is in the form of writing. If I'm taking all these notes and thinking through, I, I need to have some space to be able to write and reflect. Um, I do that right now kind of two ways. Uh, one way is about um, every couple of weeks, I um, write a newsletter that's trying to synthesize the stuff I've been saving and thinking through. 
Um, and that's a, a way to stay in touch with uh, former clients, former students, um, friends, family, et cetera. Um, it's also a way for me to kind of wrap my head around the stuff that I'm taking in and, and try to make it as coherent as possible. Um, and then again, experimenting is that other piece of the story. So the newsletter is kind of experimenting, um, but so is uh, work uh, with a client. So again, tomorrow I'll be with a, a new client. The week after I'll be with another one. Um, even though it's somewhat inefficient to prep new material um, for something like that, when I've got three or four or six hours with a, um, a group of executives inside a firm, that's a great way for me to, to try on new material and to see what sticks and fits. Um, so, and then I'll go just really tactical for a short bit. I mean, I think the way that I try to create efficiency in regards to what I take in is to do things that um, allow you to do things or uh, more than one thing at a time. So for example, um, I'll do a lot of podcasts while I'm running. Um, you know, I might run, let's say six, six hours a week on average, something like that, five or maybe, yeah, five to six hours a week, maybe a little bit longer if I'm training for something. And so that's a great time to be able to um, either run with friends that I can experiment with ideas on or um, to kind of select a set of kind of interesting podcasts, interesting interviews with people that are, um, yeah, pushing the bounds of things. So I might not have an opportunity to, to read Cass Sunstein's uh, newest book for a couple of weeks or maybe even until later in the summer. I might not have a chance to make it through the entire thing at all. But if I can hear an hour-long lecture that he gives at MIT and then a 30-minute interview that he does afterwards about his material, that provides input that I think is relevant that I can then go to incubating and experimenting later on. Yeah, love that. Do you think, uh, quick question on that, do you think, although as amazing as podcasts are, podcasts uh, ultimately will begin to ruin the book writing industry in the context of literally what you just said? Because I find myself, do, I'm, uh, as you probably know, in my classrooms and my grades, uh, probably not the best at reading the entire textbook, but I'm really good at reading the snippets of information that I think at least give me the right amount of information to move forward. So do you, that, that's just a totally personal question. But do you think that will cause a, a change in sort of the podcast versus book industry? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So um, I would say maybe there's a couple pieces there. One is that um, it's being used right now as a way to drive the book industry. So Cass Sunstein goes in the pods, uh, podcast circle because of the fact that he's pushing his books. Uh, Cal Newport's going in the circle because it's a way to kind of reach his audience. Um, so out of that, there's going to be some people that hear the book that then will not buy the book. So they hear about it. So they get the, the short snippet and they say, okay, I've, I've got enough. I don't need to. I would say right now it still probably tips in the direction of driving um, content consumption. So uh, people hear about it that otherwise wouldn't know and then make a decision on what to buy. Um, I mean, that all said, if you look at like Kindle highlights across books, um, we know that people generally, myself included, um, highlight the very front end of the book when they're taking notes, which means that most of the time we don't make it through books. Um, so, uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I don't know. It's a good question, but I hope it's a, um, a complimentary, um, resource. I find it's like really interesting to read an author, but I find hearing them kind of talk through their ideas in real time is a, a helpful way to kind of get behind the scenes of how they're thinking. Yeah. I love that. Um, so I've got a, I've got a bit of a, Tough question if you're up for it. I'm up for it. Okay. So uh, one of the entertaining quotes I hear about consultants in general is consultants have the best job in the world because they get paid a lot of money 
to go in to offer advice that if it's wrong, it's not their fault. If it's right, they're the hero. Yep. So that's a that's a uh, huge broad stroke of generalization, but that's one that I've heard enough that I've I've always just been curious. So how do you because I know you do, how do you basically overcome the value add and also I guess show that you've got I guess skin in the game or you're open to, you know, the risk side of things that you're encouraging people to take or the change in thinking you're encouraging people to take. How do you balance that? Yeah. Um so part of Part of what might be helpful is kind of explaining the type of consulting that I do or type of work with companies that I do. And then I'll kind of give you my, my answer to that. Um, so oftentimes when I'm doing work with companies, I'm helping them to kind of reframe things in new ways. So I um, was working with a group last week um, that I spent a uh, maybe a half day um, trying on new theories, seeing the world in different ways. Um, I won't do as much typically when I go in and spend four months with a with a firm, um, collecting data, having a team of people kind of working through stuff. I've done stuff a little bit more in that direction, but typically it's more um, helping people think in new ways, helping leaders think in new ways, and then helping them be articulate about what it is that they actually believe and and want to pursue in regards to their to their firm itself. Um, now that said, it doesn't quite get around the problem that you just mentioned right there. Um, so I think there's a couple ways that one could approach it. Um, one is relational. So in other words, if I just come in and have a one-time interaction and then leave and then never interact with you again, um, then all of a sudden I'll take all the credit for everything great you did. And, um, all the stuff that you didn't do is just about implementation. It's um, like the problem of the whole mission field. I feel like, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, so Secondarily, though, or maybe as, as an alternative, what I can do is I can kind of walk alongside you over a period of time. And those are the client relationships that I find most valuable. Um, so take take a, a corollary to like working on a board. If you're a board consultant and you come in and you work with the team and then help them kind of come come up with a new strategy of where they're going, you're kind of in and out in a week and then you're kind of done. If you're a board member you're still not at the level of implementation. So you're not doing the day-to-day kind of stuff, but you have a years long relationship with a set of leaders. When you're holding them accountable to decisions, you're pushing them and you're helping them reframe. So by virtue of kind of being there over a longer period of time, um, you actually have a little bit more kind of skin in the game in terms of what's done. And if you're being, um, if you're being humble about it, you should kind of take a step back and say, okay, things weren't done. Like what was my role in this? Was my idea, however brilliant, um, hard to implement? Was it not simplified down into a set of heuristics that shape how people actually behave? I think that's the fair critique you can get of work that comes out of strategy folks where beautiful strategy and then it sits in kind of a desk drawer. I think the consultant should ask the question around, well, why did I not do the implementation piece as well as I wanted? What did I miss in the midst of that process? And then I guess the only other follow-up that you could do would be to try to think about it from a um, an incentive standpoint. So um, consultants can, uh, and I've done this before when I'm working with startups, they move how they think about um, pay towards more um, pay by equity or some blend of um, billable rates plus equity. So if I'm fully billable rates and I say, here's my hourly rates, um, then my value is only assessed by the five hours that I'm with you or the 50 hours that I'm with you. If in contrast, you pull that back and you say, I'm going to do a discounted rate, but what I want to be able to do is something that has skin in the game, 
that's in the form of kind of equity, then all of a sudden I have a little bit more engagement that my ideas actually get implemented downstream and, and as a result might uh, engage with you differently. So I would say it's broadly a combination of extending the relationship, trying to make it not a one-time, one-and-done sort of model, and then rethinking how one could or should approach compensation in those, in those, uh, in those uh, engagements. Yeah, I love it. That's that's phenomenal. Thank you for touching on that. It's always been, uh, it's been a question that I know is not a fair one, but I've always wondered what the answer to is, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, so, not any easier of a question, but more, more I guess, simple is: What's your favorite part about teaching? Uh, favorite part about teaching, um, you know, I, th- I think there's two. One is um, I love the actual classroom engagement. If if you can nail a classroom experience there's kind of a performative element to it. Um, it can be, yeah, not just merely the transmission of, of information, but rather there is a, a certain experience that occurs in the moment that is transformational. And I, that's a little bit beyond how people tend to think of teaching. They tend to say, I, uh, I am the expert. I have certain forms of information and I want to make sure that you know those forms of information. I think most of teaching is like that, but I think there are certain moments in teaching where you kind of catch a certain wave, you feel a certain momentum in the classroom and you're able to kind of, um, yeah, you're able to kind of land the plane appropriately. You get people to not only uh, see the world, not only um, think about the world, have new content, but also almost see the world in a different way. Um, So those are rare experiences, but I think when it's done well, when people kind of open up their view to the world in a new way because they're trying on a new theory or maybe they're moved by, something uh, in the mix of content. I love creating those moments. Um, I think the second piece is just staying in touch with students over time. Um, This is very much shape of my time at Hope, um, but my view is that teaching is, has a mentoring component built in. So if I can find ways to stay in touch uh, with, with my students to um, help them think about the world in different ways, um, whether that's over time, staying in touch with someone like you, Matt, or, whether it's even in the midst of a semester, someone that comes in and says, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with this particular question or this particular um, uh, decision and helping them walk through that. Um, there's something about being a teacher that uh, makes people trust you, maybe more so than they should, um, <laughs> but trust you to kind of um, have you walk alongside them. And I think when you have a moment when a student is able to say, um, yeah, Peter, I, I'm going through something in a job or personal or whatever, um, phase of life. Um, and I, I want you to kind of help me think this through. Um, I find that really, uh, energizing. Yeah, that's amazing. And so the, the home run question that I love to ask every single time and, um, yeah, is basically just, you know, what, what is it that keeps you getting out of bed in the morning? What is it that gets you fired up? I mean, this whole podcast is designed around purpose, passion, calling, and what, what, what gets people out of bed in the morning. And, because there's so many people out there who are asking those same tough questions you just mentioned about student walks in the classroom. I've got this decision to make, that decision to make, and there's just so much stress. Whereas I think so many people living these cool, amazing lives are just kind of step-by-step approaching it and learning. And that's why, one, having you on the show is such an amazing thing. But secondly, I, yeah, I would just love to hear the, the, the thought of, you know, what, it, what is it that gets you out of bed, what keeps you fired up, and what keeps you learning? Yeah, so... Um... Let me see if I can answer this in two ways, because one's about passion more broadly. I'm trying to find what you're passionate about. Um, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, Matt, but I, I've really liked Cal Newport's work. Um, he's He wrote this book called uh, Deep Work that's really quite insightful about how you get uh, meaningful work done. 
he wrote a recent book as well called Digital Minimalism about taking all those apps off our phone, like LinkedIn and uh, Instagram that distract our time. Um, but a few years ago, he, um, he wrote a piece about the passion trap. Um, in fact, if you if listeners were to Google Cal Newport passion trap, you'd see it pop right up. Um, but he broadly says that sometimes we overweight um, the importance of passion. Um, I've got his article kind of pulled up here. He says that um, not only is the passion hypothesis wrong, in other words, if we find what we're really passionate about, we'll be happy and uh, engaged at work. It's also potentially dangerous because it makes us feel like we're actually more un unhappy and more uncertain. Um, so I, I think that's one thing that's worth noting um, that sometimes um, language around calling or passion, which at the core, I believe, right, at Calvin and at Hope, we talked a lot about this idea of finding one's calling. Um, the only thing that I had some fear about it when working with students in this dimension is you're talking, let's say if you're finishing up a business degree and you are um, doing cases that are about rethinking the strategy of Google and you're having side conversations around finding one's passion. And then all of a sudden you graduate and a year later you're making copies for someone and you're doing kind of analyst-based work in an industry that you don't care about. Um, that can create this sense of like, what am I doing with my life? And I've seen a lot of people that have kind of gotten to that point when they are um, yeah, really struggling with this question of, I, I haven't quite found out what I'm passionate about. And um, so as a result, Newport says that there's other things that we want to think about beyond just passion alone. So he talks about like whether or not we're drawn by um, authenticity, right? Living an authentic life, uh, drawn by autonomy, having control over how you work, um, maybe drawn by uh, and driven by mission alignment. Um, so I think for me, um, there are a lot of ways in which I'm passionate about what I do, but there's also a lot of days when I wake up and I'm tired or I'm feeling like I'm having a hard time balancing certain things. Um, and so it's an important thing to remember that um, passion is an important driver of our decisions, but we also want to kind of hold it in tension with other things that we that we might be drawn by um, and driven by. Um, so I, I think with that all said, that context given, what really drives me? I think one of it is those opportunities to um, connect with students in those unique ways, the kind of one-on-one -on -one connection. Um, the opportunities that I had to kind of shape people's life, I think those are the things that long-term people will look back on and say, oh, Peter was a good guy because he connected with people, he listened, he heard, he was present. Um, I think there's another piece that I'm drawn by, which is helping people see the world in new ways. And so whether that's through research that I do, writing that I do, or experience in a classroom, I love to have people kind of try on new things and then all of a sudden leave by saying, oh, yeah, I, I see things a little bit differently. Uh, and then I think the third thing that I'm drawn by is the opportunity to build, to, to create things that didn't exist before. Um, I like the consulting piece. Uh, the thing that I kind of struggle with in the consulting world a bit is you're taking something that already existed and you're kind of optimizing it. There's a problem solving piece of it that's interesting um, and engaging, but um, actually what I find even more engaging is the opportunity to say what doesn't exist now and what could be built out of that that could kind of change the world in, in a positive way. And so when I mentioned earlier on these three different mentors, that's really the mentorship side that I got from guys like Mike DeVries on the venture capital world. Um, Mike uh, exists in a different industry than me, but I think is really good about saying, 
what's what's out there that doesn't exist now and how can you build that in in the future and so what gets me out of the out of my own uh, bed um, besides eight hours of sleep um, <laughs> is typically a, a desire to connect with people a desire to um, help people see the the world in a new way and the opportunity to kind of build and to tell tell and craft stories that uh, start to change the world uh, hopefully in, in ways that are improvement love it that's uh that's a home run and i i love that you set the context of that because i it's it's a funny the whole context of passion is a funny one to me and i when i ask the question it's not because i care about what you're currently passionate about now because i think that's almost even concerning because that means you might even feel like you're done learning if you feel like you completely have everything figured out now. But it's fun, it's amazing, and it's such a cool learning curve for me to understand people's approach to what is it that's challenging to them, hard for them now, but they know they're at least on the right path. And learning that, learning that as the context of passion and calling, I think is just phenomenal. So I, I, I love that answer. That's amazing. Yeah, cool. I'm glad to hear cool. it. Well, uh, I guess, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? You know, um, I just, uh, I don't think so. I guess the thing that I would encourage people to keep doing is um, to keep leaning into the learning experience. So you mentioned uh, your colleague at Bloomberg, um, which I think his his point is spot on. Um, I think this idea of trying to find ways to really stretch oneself. Um, I think you can do that through travel. You can do that through just being exposed in different ways. I think too often people say, at some point in the future, I'm going to really lean into this. Um, so at some point I'll go back and get a degree at some point I will, um, travel more at some point I will fill in the blank. Um, but I think the the better way to approach that is to say, what are the small incremental things that I can do today that'll make a difference? Um, there's a guy, Dave Brailsford, Sir Dave Brailsford, who's the uh, coach of the British cycling team. And he's written about this idea of the 1% principle. Uh, so in other words, when he was working with the British team, uh, he first worked on, um, taking 1% of weight out of the bike. And then he ended up saying, let's improve our aerobic efficiency by 1% and then our strength efficiency by 1%. And in fact, if we can do 1% each month, then that's going to make a difference. And 1% is, is nothing. Um, but if you start to um, build those things in the aggregate, they make a pretty significant difference. So if you're finding yourself, let's say, at the, at the situation where you, you want to learn a little bit more, you want to be a little bit more focused in what you're engaging with, you want to... Um, lean into relationships in a different way, uh, be a little bit more intentional. Uh, it doesn't require flipping the switch and being 100% different tomorrow. But what it does require is a, an ability to say, where is that 1% gain? And how can I start to aggregate that over time? And so for me, it's saying, well, you know, I want to be a little bit more intentional relationally. I want to be a little bit more reflective. Um, it would be easy for me to say, what I need to do is I need to kind of go up into the mountains for uh, three months and reflect in a cabin and then come back uh, fully enlightened. But maybe an alternative is to say, well, maybe it's uh, three days a week of journaling at the end of the day, just to kind of say, what am I learning? What am I seeing? Maybe it's taking out some of those uh, um, apps on my phone that distract too much time. Maybe it's uh, uh, finding ways to build um, and craft myself into a, a different community or to be more intentional with that community. It doesn't require these massive shifts. It's just small 1% changes that over time can make a pretty big difference in one's life. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Baumgarten, thanks a ton for being on the show, and this has been an absolute blast. Thank you. Matt, it's always a pleasure. Keep up the good work, and I uh, look forward to hearing all your future guests. Hey, thanks. All right, take care. Yep, you too.